Today's episode of The Wire, Way Down in the Hole, on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics on the front lines while keeping local restaurants and business as well. You can directly help these heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com backslash WCK to donate. Please, we're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to the World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com backslash WCK. I got to ask you. If every time Snap Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? Well, Snap Boogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? God, this America, man. Welcome back to Way Down in the Hole and... Forget about all that prologue bullshit we gave you guys in the first episode. We're getting right down to it, <laughs> right? Man, we just going to jump right in. We starting off season one pilot episode of The Wire. Um, you know what? I judge this. I don't know if you had this feeling too, uh, Van, but I judge the pilot episode so much differently. This is now my third rewatch of it. So much differently than I ever have. Certainly from the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it, I thought it was slow. Uh, the second time I saw it, I was like, okay, a little bit better. The third time now I've seen it, I'm like, damn, this shit was kind of brilliant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? So what were your impressions, yeah. your general impressions after after this pilot episode? It's like looking at a chessboard, right? If you look at a chessboard and in mid-game and you don't know what the pieces are supposed to do, the board looks chaotic. It just looks like stuff is everywhere. But if you know what the pieces are supposed to do, how they're supposed to move and what the objective is... It looks like poetry. And going back and watching the first episode again, uh, it seems like a long poem. You start to see every character's motivation come out. And you see some things that don't exist beyond the pilot. Like there's like, you notice some things that are that they only did, only happened in this one show. Uh, It doesn't seem slow to me. It just... it reminds me of just how much the wire ass of his audience. Cause it starts off in the middle of it. Some dude you don't know is accused of some crime you didn't see with some other guy who you never heard of sitting down watching, uh, looking at other guys that he doesn't really know that you certainly don't know. And if you're watching it for the first time, you might be like, yo, who is that? Who is that? Who is this? Who is that? But like everything else in the show, you got to let it come to you. Yeah. You made a great comparison when we talked about it off air. You, you compared it to Game of Thrones. And anybody who started Game of Thrones in that first episode, you were like, who the fuck? Who are they related to? Why is he banging his sister? Like, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. Like, you really felt like you got dropped into the middle of chaos. Uh, if anything, um, you know, seeing it now, 
and having lived life a little bit more, I want to kick my own ass for not being sucked into this sooner. I don't know why I wasn't as sucked into this pilot the first time I saw it, particularly with the way it starts. The way it starts, it starts off with such a bang because, and this was always, you know, great moments throughout the history of The Wires, that that opening scene where they set the tone. The opening scene of this really set the, set the tone with Snot Boogie, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, death, the death of Snot Boogie, right? And where... Yeah. The dialogue, that's when you could tell based off the dialogue between McNulty um, and Snot Boogie's boy that this is not going to be your average run of the mill, uh, non thinking ass drama. Like the dialogue in this is going to be remarkable. And that little exchange between these two is so fucking funny um, when you have a guy who was, who used to steal from every craps game. Right. Yeah. They know he's stealing. Right. And right. There's they almost it, it had become a ritual, which just lets you know right away that uh, there's a certain conditioning that happens even when you're in these elements of survival. It's like, yo, our job was to play craps. His job was to try to steal the shit. He tried to do it all the time. We beat the shit out of him. We come back tomorrow. It's like another right. day at the assembly line. Right. Another day at the meal. They right. had to do him like this, right? We, right. <laughs> so when McNulty asked this fool, like, we, y'all know he gonna steal. Why the hell y'all let him keep playing craps? He's like, it's America. You got it's America. To. Right. And it's and, like, and the reality, yeah, it's like, and McNulty's trying to make, it, he's trying to make sense of something that's senseless, right? Right. Uh, and the, the, uh, the Snob Boogie's boy is basically telling him, look, we, we fucked this dude up. But killing them is one step too far. And that is an important scene because that's going to set up sort of for the rest of the wire the fact that there is a sense of morality there. Right. There's there a code. There are <laughs> rules. There's a code. And having a code is going to be so integral to everything that we see in the rest of the show. Chain of command is a code. What Omar does is a code. All of these things, there's a lot, like a man got to have a code. That's a big, big deal in the wire moving forward. And that first scene is kind of what gives it to you. Yeah, I, I think that that is kind of when we're thinking about the overall themes and the overall narratives of this first episode. That's the thing that kind of one of the things that jumps out to you is that these are two different worlds, but there's procedures in this world, in both mm. of these worlds. Right. So you have the procedure of, yeah, you know, this dude is a thief and you know, lightweight piece of shit. But like, this is this is the code we've all decided that we were going to adhere to. We're going to beat his ass, but nobody's going to take it so far as to kill him. On McNulty's side, where the theme of chain of command is what you alluded to. And in one of your favorite scenes, um, your best scene, because we, in each of these episodes that we, um, you know, do, we're going to both talk about what we thought was the best scene in every episode. And your best scene alludes to that code to that discipline that they have, the procedure of it all. That this is, despite the fact this is the chaotic world of police and drugs and all this other shit in between, they still have an order about what they do. And mm -hmm. one of the biggest, the theme of the episode is how D'Angelo violated that order of right. how they had decided they were going to conduct business. And once this order is violated, McNulty found out the same shit you violate the order, all types of chaos can ensue as a result of you habitually line-stepping. Right. And, and the thing that's amazing about the pilot 
episode of The Wire is it is the uh, first sort of um, look at the fall of the Barksdale organization. Barksdale has five out of seven towers on the terrace. That's 10 stairwells and five high-rises going 24-7 for dope and coke. And that's just the towers. The low-rises, the avenue corners, they're all his, too. How do you know this? Everybody knows it. Define everybody. Well, everybody on the west side. What we are now about to watch is his fall. The rest of the wire, the rest of everything is the fall of the Barksdale organization. And the first thing that happens is D'Angelo fucks up. Mr. Gant, do you see the man you identified from that photo array card sitting in the courtroom today? He's right there. For the record, the witness has identified the defendant, D'Angelo Barksdale. And like the one man, he got knocked down and the so victim got knocked down? No, the man with the gun. The man who was knocked down had a gun. And do you see that man in the courtroom today? Nope. Excuse me? He ain't here. You don't... You testified. D'Angelo is up on that stand because he fucked up. He made some noise. He got McNulty watching, however long McNulty's been watching. McNulty now knows how much flex they have, how much strength they have because of what they pull with the witness. They've pulled it with the witness. He understands how deep their organization is and thus what a threat their organization is. And so now the conversation gets had between him and the judge, and now all eyes are on you. And so what we learned through that about all the procedures that are going to take us through the next seasons of it. We learn about the procedures, how the, the, the homicide guys catch cases. We learn about the procedures in the drug houses. We learn about procedures everywhere because a character that we don't even know that we love yet, who is Avon Barksdale, who most of us always all across the board love, we're watching his last days, in a sense, as being the king of the West Baltimore drug trade. I agree with everything you said. And also to add to that, I think right away what this pilot does a really good job of establishing is people's agendas and motivations. And they aren't what you think. If you've come into this at this point with a preconceived idea of what might motivate drug dealers or what might motivate even an addict, what might motivate um, even, uh, you know, somebody like McNulty or a cop or whatever, you find out all those motivations, none of them are altruistic at all. I mean. Really what what drives McNulty, not just in this episode, but is a constant theme throughout the whole series of The Wire. McNulty is driven by arrogance. He's not He's arrogant. He doesn't think, he, he doesn't think drugs are particularly the 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 worst thing ever to happen to society. He doesn't have this moral code as we often see in police dramas of like this police officer who's just fighting a good fight. No, McNulty likes to believe he's smarter than every fucking body. He's motivated to prove that time and time again, which is why he's the ultimate self-sabotager. It's like he has to show that he's smarter than all these fucking criminals, smarter than all his, all his bosses, because he sometimes says it with such, throughout the, throughout the whole series of The Wire, he says it with such conviction that he's the smartest fucking person there. Like he right. says it all the time. The only person he might consider on his level is probably Lester, who obviously comes in a little bit later. But that's how he thinks. So he's not motivated to bring down the Barksdales because 
that they're evil drug lords tearing apart the city of Baltimore. He's motivated to bring them down because he doesn't even like the fact that they think they've built this organization under his nose that they're smarter than he is by doing Mm -hmm. that. And he just can't let that shit ride. And yet in this episode, you see even a small evolution uh, in McNulty. When Rawls calls McNulty into his office to chew him out over talking to the judge. You were having the deputy bust my balls over a prior year case. Is this what I need from you, you insubordinate little fuck? Major, look, I'm really sorry. Phelan, he and I, we, we go back a little, you know? He wanted to know what I know about the crew in his court. I didn't mean to cross you I had to go upstairs knowing nothing and explain to the deputy why he's getting calls about murders that don't mean a shit to anybody. Look, sir, this judge, he fucks me up. He asked me a question, I answer it. I didn't know he was going to call anybody. You have my attention, detective. My complete, undivided attention. You see something in McNulty that you never see any other time in The Wire. You see McNulty like, damn, my bad. <laughs> like, when Rawls <laughs> is dressing him down, he's like, yo, he just pulled me in there, he asked me what happened, and I started running it down. The only time that it seemed like he did not have an agenda to fuck someone, because the one thing about McNulty is throughout the entire show, he never stops fucking. Either he's literally fucking or he's fucking somebody else. He fucks throughout the entire show. McNulty fucks. And that fucks really should a, be the, And fucks with an X, not a and CK. And fucks with an X, with a CK. Fucks he fucks. X. He's going to fuck. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that's the only time. And then the scene towards the end where him and... Him and I, not Lester, him and Bunk are are at the train tracks and he says, I'm going to do this case. That is when the McNulty that we all know is born. Fuck these guys. It's not going to be rip and run. It's not going to be hand to hand, by bus. It's not going to be any of that. I'm going to fucking do this case. The determination is there. The headstrong obstinance is there. No one's going to stop him. You can even see on Bunk's face. It's like, my nigga about to fuck up. You know what I mean? So, so like the 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 whole thing. I don't know if the the, the ringer is gonna edit out the n word, but who knows? Uh, but but like uh, the whole thing. So, um, I think that's why kind of the pilot episode is so important because we're every single character is not like uh, they're almost born. We almost witness. Not like uh, they're sort of, they don't debut, they're born into this world and they're all little babies and then we watch them grow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it is amazing um, when you look back and watch this episode, how much foundational work that they did in laying, laying out what the rest of the series would be about. Much more than I thought. A lot of really great foreshadowing, which we'll get to because in every episode we want to break down some of the tales that appear in these particular episodes that leads you to some of the things that happen later on. The shit is way more obvious than you think it is. Like, you know, maybe first go around. I know I missed a lot of them, but then having rewatched it, I'm like, damn, that was like obvious as hell. They were just literally uh, forecasting, um, you know, kind of the future. All right. So we got a, a couple categories here. We want to kind of roll through um, these observations that, you know, we've made time and time again, watching the wire that, um, you know, we certainly want to be able to discuss with each other. Um, one of those observ- observations I made, Bodhi spits a lot. He spits a lot. 
like a, a lot. He's a spitter. A, and so he's a spitter. Shout out to JD I, Williams, by the way. Shout out to JD Williams, because before we get on this, JD is my guy. He listens to like he, I know he's gonna listen to this. He's already hit me up about it. JD is my dude. Bodie is one of my favorite characters. So shout out to JD. I know you can hear us right now saying that Bodie is a spitter. You know what we mean. <laughs> I know how that sounds. Okay. I know how that no. sounds. I know how that sounds. He but Bodie spits a lot and he's and and it, and he you know he spits in a very stylish way too. Right. It's like sometimes it's, aggressive... it's out the side of his mouth. Yeah. Yes. It's aggressive, but it's pinpoint. It's aggressive, right. but it's pinpoint, which in many ways reflects the character that he is, right? Bodie's an aggressive, in-your-face kind of guy, but he's very pinpoint with his aggressiveness. And so my job, I'm going to count how many times Bodie spits in every fucking episode because I'm You're going to keep a, a, a running tally. And by the way, Bodie's, Bodie's spits uh, uh, reflect his emotions. So sometimes if Bodie's just spitting the spit, it kind of comes maybe like out the out the out, out the front with like no emotion to it. If Bodie spits angrily, it's at a direct angle out of the side with a kind of snarl. It's like, you know what I'm saying? But if it's just like a casual spit, he doesn't even care about it. And also the different globules too of the way he spits. He spit in anger a lot at D'Angelo. I like that. But you're going to have a hell of a job on your hands if you're going to count every time this brother spits throughout the whole show because he spits a ton. I, 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 I want this to be the unofficial tally. I might have to watch it again just to make sure that I, I did get this correct. But I, I counted five spits. So this was a five mm, spitter. A five, five spitter episode. A, a five spitter episode. Um, right. Okay. Now, in breaking down this pilot, um, Van, what do you think of of the things that you saw, the scenes, whatever? What do you think aged really well? Like, was it weird for you at all? For like, they're like using their pagers. So I'm like, holy shit! I remember when I had. A nah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the technology doesn't age that good. But like, what did you think from this episode? Like, actually, aged pretty well. Huh. In, in terms of specific scenes. Um, I guess The Wire is incredibly dated. First of all, let's get that. Like, you can tell what year you're in in The Wire about, like, what people are playing on the radio. So when you listen to the things you hear, lean with it, rock with it, you know where you are. You hear uh, Ludacris. Kind of, so The Wire, because of that, is it's inherently dated. Um, as far as what aged the best in this particular scene... Uh, in this particular episode, should I say? Really, the stories don't feel dated, right? The story, like, it's not like I look back at say, like, I look back at other shows, right? Saved by the Bell. I look back, I watch Saved by the Bell. I watch a ton of Saved by the Bell. I love Saved by the Bell. Everything that they were talking about on Saved by the Bell now seems dated. It seems like every, the way that they look, remember they did the whole Saved by the Bell, very special episode about drugs and stuff like that. Even Wait, was the that the ways, one where Jesse was on the uppers? Was that yeah. One? Yeah. Right. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. That entire thing feels dated now. The themes of the wire and the back and forth between, you know, all of these systems, these systems still exist. They still there. All of this stuff is still real. So I guess that is the thing to me that aged the best. Just uh, the push pull itself. Well, you hit on something that was that's that's big. Okay, so the reason why the Saved by the Bell one doesn't age as well because it's like who the fuck is taking uppers? Like nobody. I mean, I'm sure people do take them, but like that's just not uppers aren't in the lingo anymore. Speed that's not mm -hmm. really in the lingo. Like that's just not a thing anymore, right? 
the thing is, right now in this country, we're having a huge opioid crisis. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. I mean, and, the, and the, the pandemic is taking over everything, but opioids are a thing. People have gone back to heroin, right? Because right. Of, of it being an opioid. So because of that, the, the reason why I think that push-pull that you talked about, the trade itself doesn't feel old because this is still a relevant drug today. Yeah. Right? It's like what's happening is still very relevant. Um, there's still... Um, and even we'll get we'll get to this later on because of specifically what happens to the towers is a representation of what happens today. So even like their whole setup as a drug unit, while pagers are old as fuck, the setup is still relatively modern. That's still aged pretty well. Um, the chain of command shit, the personal situations, like the the texture of what the wire is about all age exceptionally well. The only thing that didn't age with it is, again, the technology. That's it. You know, the fact that people are pulling out flip phones is like, who the fuck has a flip and, phone anymore? Uh, and something else that didn't age well, of course, the clothes. I see a lot oh, of... Dude. I see a lot of property, a G-unit. Man. I see some iceberg. You know what I'm saying? This was back in a time where it, your clothes... Now, in order to be fly... You got to be a half pants on that's tight enough for people to see your femoral artery pumping. That's the way it is now. But back then, you had to have pants that were, that were baggy enough for you to fit all the drugs in the stash inside of the pants. So, like, that's one thing that, of course, is a running thing. All the styles that were there, of course, they didn't age well. But like you said, the show is going to age well because... A lot of the problems that they were fighting then are problems that we're fighting now. You know what I mean? Dope aged well. Unfortunately, dope aged well. So the the wire in this episode, any episode is going to age well because dope did. <laughs> right. And, and it's like the, the trade that exists and the culture that exists around it is like timeless, right? So right. there's um it, but it's funny you said that about the clothes, because I had this thought. When um, D'Angelo, like looking at his clothes, right? Now, D'Angelo, one thing I think I missed before the first couple times I rewatched The Wire is that D'Angelo really thought he was a sharp ass dresser. Like he, was. he really, he really did, oh, right? Yeah. And he, I mean, he had on what some Timbo's, baggy ass jeans, he had his little leather coat, his oversized turtleneck. Yo, people was wearing oversized turtlenecks. That was a thing. What I had the a lot fuck? of them. I had, had a lot of them. I had several. You go to Dillard's, like you go to Dillard's, you know, the, the you go to Dillard's down there, but shout out to Dillard's down there in Baton Rouge. Shout out to my homeboy Gino, who wasn't Avon Barksdale, who was hooking us up at Dillard's, but didn't have his organization quite tight enough to have the McNulty's not swoop in on him and have us have to give it back. Uh, but, uh, but no, you go to those big kind of, cable joints and they had to use a pimp though and it was a way for you to be a little more professional looking so and D'Angelo that kind of said is the best dressed guys on the wire in terms of that were D'Angelo and Stringer Stringer was always tight but yeah he had on and he had the little half kufi on was it like the little half what you, what like you, a little, little half <laughs> yeah man speaking of Stringer I'll get to this a little bit later because we got some other stuff that we um, need to get through but Every episode, I'm going to have the Stringer Bell fuckboy alert because <laughs> Stringer Bell, this is the other thing, too, is that there are two because two positions I have moved on by a lot since the first time I watched The Wire. One was thinking season two 
just wasn't up to snuff. My cha- my rewatching, my opinion of season two completely has moved. The other thing is, I actually had the audacity. I actually the stupidity to actually think that Stringer Bell was some kind of genius. Man, fuck Stringer Bell, okay? Wow. <laughs> Worst person. Worst person, right? Wow. So every episode, Stringer Bell does something totally fuckboyish that you just mm-hmm. like, this why the way that dude got it is why he deserved that shit. This is why. Yeah. And wish he would have got that shit sooner. I, I look, I still look, like when you get down to the Avon versus Stringer thing when it happens, uh, and you know, Stringer gets, Stringer gets got, I still look at the grand scheme of things more in a Stringer way. I wish more that Avon would have listened to Stringer rather than that Stringer would have listened to Avon. Having said that, Stringer Bell makes a lot of mistakes, man. So many. Like, so like, many. So like, there's so, like, there were so many times Stringer would do something and Avon would be like, yo, Bob, bro, what you thinking? Like, oh, my bad, man, I messed up. And then more so than you remember. There was a reason why Avon was at the top. Stringer was good, but he wasn't quite good enough. He made a lot of very crucial mistakes. So we're going to be talking about all of those too. Yeah, and just to give um, you guys listening so a little bit of a backstory. So, um, Ed Burns and David Simon have both insisted that these characters, the main characters in, in particular, they're all composites of people that they know. But there was a drug case that, if you want to say, it, it maybe wasn't necessarily real life, but uh, uh, that the wire was reflecting this, like, you know, kind of, um, you know, bit by bit or exactly. But there was a real life case of which this was based off of. Um, it was a drug dealer who actually appears in The Wire. Um, later on, you meet him in season four. But the genesis of the Avon-Stringer dynamic was based off a case, a drug case. Um, it was an indictment that Ed Burns uh, was able to bring forth um, of a guy named Melvin Little Williams. And he was a drug trafficker in Baltimore, big time, you know, big deal. And he had a, a partner um, named uh, Lamont Chin Farmer, right? And so they were partners in the drug trade. And so Chin Farmer is kind of a composite character that's supposed to represent, you know, Stringer Bell because it was Chin Farmer who came up with the idea to use beepers as some kind of communication systems for the entire drug operation. He also, in real life, owned a print shop, which... Stringer Bell eventually came to do. And yes, he took classes at a community college, which also was part of Stringer Bell's story later on as the series progresses. But shit, since we're here now, let me tell you a Stringer Boy fuckboy moment in this episode. Okay, Stringer Bell fuckboy moment. Go for it, yeah. Here's his fuckboy moment. Or I should say one of his fuckboy moments because he actually had a a, a couple, I think, with with D'Angelo. One thing that was very clear And D'Angelo, by the way, is a character um, that we're going to take a little deeper dive into in a moment. Um, Very clear, Stringer Bell wasn't fucking with D'Angelo. Doesn't like him. Doesn't like him at all. It's very clear from that from the beginning. Body language, mm -mm, not fucking with this dude. You know, Stringer Bell's a fuckboy because he was in the court taking notes in a suit. Like, he's some fucking professional, right? what are you talking about what the fuck man like what the fuck he's sitting there actually taking these notes looking like the biggest fucking dickhead ever like his glasses pulled down like what I mean he wasn't taking notes that's what I'm saying but he's just the kind of fuck boy to be in there drawing some shit trying to look like he's smarter than everybody because that was Springer Bell in a nutshell is that I'm gonna try to act like I'm smarter than everybody 
because I got on a suit and I got my glasses pulled down and I'm sitting here scribbling in this notepad like I fucking know something. And then to show up later at the strip club with the same fucking suit on, I was like, you're going to a strip club. You had time to change. What the fuck are you doing, Stringer Bell? So let's look. So let's let's look at something real quick. In Stringer Bell's defense, okay, in the courtroom, let's look at the Barksdales that were in the courtroom, if I can remember. I think in that room it was... So you had Stinkum, you had uh, uh, Savino, you had Bay, and then you had D'Angelo on the stand. Of those guys, he is the fucking smartest fucking guy on it. He he is the smartest guy. He I, I got to defend him there. I'm not going to turn into a Stringer Bell apologist, but I feel like you're going to push me into that corner as we do more of these. But he he had to put on the face. Avon couldn't be there so that uh, everything went okay. Stringer did do something in the courtroom, though. When the lady was about to actually identify D'Angelo, she looked around and Avon uh, Stringer gave her the nod to like say, nah, remember what we talked about. So he had to be in the courtroom and he had to look professional. I think you're being too hard on Stringer Bell in this particular case. I think you're letting your Stringer Bell sort of uh, your hate cloud your judgment. First of all, the brother wouldn't even take it notes. He was drawing some kind of superhero or something like that. Fuck you, officer. Of course. So I, 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 I think in this particular case, he wasn't being a fuck boy. He was being a responsible delegate. He had to make sure shit went right. Mm. Oh my goodness! It's just it was just more evidence of his smartest dude in the room. Yeah, you a but you a smart dude, as we would later find. He just a smart dude in a room of dumb motherfuckers. That's Stringer Bell. Like that's yeah. why. But that don't mean you that smart. You know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> you got grade that shit on a curve. It just means that yeah, among these mother motherfuckers getting one point, and you got the four point. Great, but guess what? When you get in a room full of four points, your ass is really like a two point. Right. You really a C student. That's all I'm saying. Word. Right? So... No, I get it. It was just more kind of evidence that, like, at least for me, that Stringer Bell is always, um, you know, he's always trying to come across as a little bit better he, than what he actually is. Like, he can't admit... He's not the type of person who, who doesn't know what he doesn't know. He's going to always act like he knows it, whether he does or not. Which is why I was so oh. glad that Clay Davis... Fuck them over. But that's all. Yeah, yeah, he gets used. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that later on. We'll talk about that later. Okay, so for this episode, the character we want to jump deeper into is D'Angelo. D'Angelo Barksdale, who his this case that he has. So in episode one, the setup is D'Angelo has killed a dude uh, in the high rises um, that jumped stupid. And the only way he felt like he could defend himself is by killing this dude that came at him, um, which is all sorts of out of pocket for a organization trying to run a tight ship, trying to keep, you know, the police off of, off of them. And he has kind of violated this discipline that the Barksdale organization is trying to show. And there is a witness who saw D'Angelo do it. And so Avon has to come up and clean up behind his cousin who has taken this gigantic misstep. And so the series essentially starts or the, the the tension rather starts with D'Angelo Barksdale being on trial for murder and Avon getting him out this shit. Um, you know, the thing about D'Angelo is like, I, I've always, there's not a lot of characters in The Wire that you feel a lot of absolute sympathy for, but he probably was the one I felt the most consistent sympathy for because he he was somebody who certainly deserved a better family in a lot of respects. Um, 
it's not because I felt like he was trying to do right, but I felt like even he was he was a he was smarter than the game that he was playing. Like what he was doing was kind of beneath him, but he couldn't really see that. And he, you know, I mean, I guess if you want to look at him as sort of wasted potential, okay, I I, I think that'd be part of it. But he just seemed to be somebody, another person that just kind of caught up in this larger vortex of Barksdale bullshit. He didn't buy into it at all. But I don't know if he necessarily had until it was too late, the courage to actually distance himself from it, to understand that he was kind of beneath the shit that he was doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. He is the viewer. Like, you are him. Like, in 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 the first season of The Wire, especially in this episode, you are D'Angelo Barstow. I say that because it seems as if we don't know the rules and we learn the rules through D'Angelo breaking them. Okay, so we don't know the rules. We'd have broke the rules. We'd have talked in the whip. We'd have, we we might have shot the dude. In the, so every rule that we learn, we learn it because in this first episode, because D'Angelo breaks the rules. He's as innocent as we are. He's as naive, naive as we are. He's as clueless to this entire world, seemingly, as we are, as the viewer is. Um, and it's also through him that we learn what the Barstow organization values. They value Avon's anonymity, right? They're up there talking at Orlando's. And, uh, you know, you, you say something, uh, D- D'Angelo says to Avon, uh, you know, you know how jail is. And Avon goes, I don't know nothing about jail. And I don't want to know. So you're not dealing with the gangsters that you've seen in other movies who have a sheet this long and a bunch of priors. You're looking at a mysterious, shadowy figure who would, who would prefer not to be famous, not to go in the club and have everybody. Remember, this is a different gangster than what we've seen, right? The gangsters we've seen, if we're talking about movies like New Jack City and Paid in Full, or the guy standing on top of tables on New Year's Eve, popping champagne, having people throw money at him, not this guy. This guy doesn't want anybody to know what he looks like. This guy doesn't want anyone to talk to him. This guy is about the game and the game itself. We learned that because his little cousin, excuse me, his little his his nephew, which by the way, in the episode, several times they say cousin when they mean uncle and uncle. Like sometimes they don't they don't even know how they relate it. But um, we learned that because his nephew isn't about that. We learn through D'Angelo fucking up even later on when uh, when Bodie and Poot and them, when they fuck up Bubs' boy, when they fuck up Bubs' boy because the, the, he tries to burn them, uh, D'Angelo does what either one, it, it, what any of us regular people would do. Picks up the money, turns his back on it. Like, I'm looking at that like, yo, look at you. This is a good guy with a heart. Wrong move. You can't show any weakness when you're in the courtyard. And Stringer tells him that. So once again, the episode is in a lot of ways defined by mistakes that he makes that goes against the code of the organization. And that's how we learn. So he's our avatar. And that relationship with us and him is going to keep going until... They eventually break them. Now, you know, you made me think of something when you're talking about Avon. Avon is, he's edgier, but he, he's very much, Wood Harris is very much the character he played in Paid in Full. That's very yeah. similar. It's close. It's, it's close. close. It's, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, Avon's a little bit more, 
I mean, you know, those guys were real guys. So, you know, yeah, um, so Avon is a little bit, uh, I'd say more powerful. Um, but, you know, I'm not I'm not going to get Dame on here. Shout out Dame Dash. I'm not going to get Dame on here telling me about what really happened in the 80s and stuff like that. I don't really know. I watched the movie. I watched a couple of Vlad TV interviews that the guys did. Other than that, that's that's all I know about uh, Rich and them. But like, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. It's a guy that, that that would rather have the money and rather be number one than have the spotlight. Yeah, Avon was a little, he was a little edgier, a little more personality because uh, the, the character that Wood Harris played in Pain Full is like a boring drug dealer. Like that was what he wanted his MO to be is that somebody who just slithers in and out and, you know, as you said, has that mystery you know, to him. But you think, I, you think I, Mitch, wait, you think Mitch was a born drug dealing paid it for? He kind of had to get pulled into it. Well, yeah, that's true. He was he was he wasn't a born drug dealer. He did, I mean, well, Wood Harris, I mean, he but he he the he had a little bit of both. Oh, Ace. I said I called him Mitch. Ace. Yeah, you, you Ace, Mitch is uh, yeah. Kai Fi. Uh, Mitch, no, he was a born, was a born drug, drug dealer. dealer. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Mitch, so shout out. But I was talking about Ace, yeah, because that was the AZ character, Rich. He was a born drug dealer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and Wood Harris's character was more of a, like a silent, but, you know, making moves, you know, thinking two or three steps ahead. Because remember, he he got on because he started de- delivering the dry cleaning of a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. he got he got put into the game, but the way he operated and moved was so unlike, you know, Mitch, so unlike Cameron, as we know, was like the fool of all fools. Uh, one of right. the great underrated drug dealer characters ever was, was Cameron. But getting back to... Rico. Uh, yeah, Rico. Yeah, getting back to D'Angelo, um, I I think too that you also he's also established to some degree as the moral compass a little bit of the Barksdale organization because we know Weebay is a strong cold you know killer. Mm-hmm. He don't, he don't give a fuck, right? Right. Avon is about that dough. Um, you know, Stringer is a little fake ass CEO, so we we kind of hmm. <laughs> I know I will be slandering him pretty much the whole time. Um. So we, everybody kind of has their roles, but D'Angelo, he absorbs a little differently and moves differently than they do. Um, and even when he comes to take over the low rises, when he's demoted and he's suddenly in this position where he's got this, where he's the shepherd to these lost sheep, the youngins or whatever. I mean, he came in there kind of cracking the whip a little bit. Don't get me wrong, but he's also trying to teach him something at the same time. And he kind of, establishes that role early trying to get them to conduct themselves better so he's in a way he's become sort of this guiding light mentor character that is gives us a deeper entry point into the world that they really live in yeah which in a way is kind of if i could almost circle back the only thing that's wrong with ep- with the pilot episode, the only thing that's wrong with the pilot episode All right, is, is this is this a is this the we love this show butt moment because it sounds like it. <laughs> we love this, this is, show butt. This is the I love this show, but we love this show butt moment for me. This is it. Okay, this is the we love the show butt moment. Hard to believe that D'Angelo would have got busy. Hard to believe that he would have killed somebody in the in the in the in the, in the, in the tower like that. Yeah, based like off when his you, temperament, you're right. Based off his temperament, it's hard to believe. That 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 would have happened with him. I know he'd been in it for a long time, but nowhere else in the series, not just in this episode, nowhere else in the series does D'Angelo show even a scintilla of aggression. Even when even aggression when threatened, 
Nowhere else does he really show any of that. He shows his heart. He shows that he cares. He shows that he thinks in things of a in a huge societal way rather than some people might be just focused on the block. Um, he shows his insecurity, but never does he ever show a streak with Stringer as calculated as you as as you say that he is as as he as he seems to be. Stringer shows throughout the series an incredible temper. He gets mad at the drop of a hat. You never really see that um, from D'Angelo. And I'm not saying he wouldn't have got busy if he thought that somebody was trying to take him out, which is what he said. He was trying to end me. I'm not saying he wouldn't have done that, but it just doesn't seem um, like he was the guy to really poke somebody and get him out of there. Uh, so that would be the only thing. But I think the character, that character, um, the pilot episode did the best job. If it established one character in a granite, solid way, the best character that it established uh, to that degree um, was D'Angelo Barstow. Yeah, I would say the two characters, it would be him and McNulty. Um, we know that we'll have a ton of opportunities to take a deeper dive in, in, into McNulty, but I think what it, the pilot establishes right away that whatever happens in this first season is going to be a result of McNulty and D'Angelo's drama. They mm. do that very well, even though, and, and this is kind of another thing, um, just looking at it more big picture um, beyond D'Angelo. Another thing I have to give the wire credit for in this pilot is to throw this many characters out there and still come up with a very coherent plot and story. That degree of difficulty, what they executed is really unbelievable because you were meeting not just one or two characters, you were meeting throngs of characters and every time, because like, like the youngins and the low risers, you meet them all at once. It's like, oh, there's Pooh, there's Wallace, there's Bodie, like all of them happen at once. And then it's like, oh, it's D'Angelo. Even before D'Angelo, there's Weebay, there's Avon. Like you meet about 15 characters in the first like 10 minutes. And that's a lot to kind of keep up with. But yeah, I the story was still very cohesive and it indicated that, okay, we're going to show you what happens when somebody murders somebody in plain sight. It goes to court. We're going to take it from, you know, what happens and when witnesses are intimidated to, okay, this is how, this is what is happening at the street level. This is what happened at organization levels. Oh, by the way, these are the police trying to catch the people who are involved in these crimes. So it just, it gives you a very panoramic view of some of the issues that are going on um, when it comes to drugs and crime and that kind of thing, all while introducing you to all the, all these characters, it's a lot to keep up with. But at the same time, it's still really, really cohesive. And it's also a testament to the showrunners to get these guys to play Spurs basketball, right? Because, you know, there's no, there's no Westbrook on the court. Now, it's not a diss at Russ, but, you know, you got a high usage rate, That sounded like a diss, man. It's, it, I love him. One of my favorite, one of my top five favorite players ever to watch. No that disses, like but, shade. you know. <laughs> no, it's not no shade, but like Russ, Russ needs the ball. Russ like to do his thing. No shade at all. I love watching him play. Intense. Um, but they're, but they're, but they're, they're playing Spurs basketball during the wire. Like, everyone... Is 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 getting their moment? They're moving the ball around. Are there guys that they might lean on when they need a bucket in the scene? Sure, but other than that, you got to share that rock. Um, and so that has to do with you know people buying into the material, uh, and 
just kind of the climate that they're able to kind of put around a bunch of different people. There are no push in, let's give these guys very many dramatic moments in this episode or in very many episodes going forward. All right. Um, we discussed about how we're, you know, each of the, the episodes, we're going to break down what our favorite scenes was from every episode. What was mm-hmm. your favorite scene in episode one? My favorite scene in episode one is Weebay and D'Angelo riding in the car when they're on their way to see Avon at Orlando's. So Weebay is in the car. He's driving D'Angelo's shotgun. The music is playing. Um, D'Angelo starts talking about everything that they just did in the court. And you can see on Weebay's face, this is before we know the rules of the Barstale organization. This is before we know kind of what's going on and and what they stand for. This is before we really even know Weebay. This helps you see into his character too. D'Angelo is talking, he's talking, he's running off at the mouth. He's legitimately happy to have escaped a prison sentence. And anyone would be happy. We learn later on that he was courtside for eight months. So he's been in jail. Because remember, it's a murder beef. Probably didn't get any bail. He's been in jail for eight months. So of course he's happy. Of course he's thankful to Bay. He's thankful to uh, to Avon. He's thankful to Stringer. So he's talking. Weebay turns the car, uh, turns the radio up, all right? Then after that, takes him out of the car, you know, stops it, takes him out of the car and says, yo, what's the rule? No talking on the phone, no talking in vehicles. What's the rule? I know the rule. Say it. Don't talk in the car. On the phone or in any place that ain't ours and don't say shit to anybody who ain't us. But it was just you, yo. It's your fucking truck. We basically letting them know that the rules aren't about you. The rules aren't about me. I know you're not snitching. I know I'm not snitching. The rules are the rules because they keep our organization solid. And seeing him stop and not break the rules tells you everything you need to know about Bay. It tells you everything you need to know about D'Angelo. But more than anything, it tells you that at that time, how on their shit the Barksdale organization was. The discipline wasn't just a guideline. It was the operating way of life. And they weren't fucking playing with that. And that lets you know that you were serious. They were serious. And that's the world you were about to get into. So I, I still love that scene now. Because it just see, it seems like almost a father talking to a son. You know what I mean? So that that would be the one that I would say did it for me. Yeah, and and as you as you said, like I think that people tend to think of drug dealing as not necessarily a discipline. Like I'm not trying to make it seem like, you know, you're an engineer or some shit, but um, but there is a certain level of discipline discipline and commitment that's required to be somewhat successful in that business. And especially in a business where your life your freedom is constantly in jeopardy to be able to come up with some coherent system that everybody can follow uh, is an interesting business model. Now, my favorite scene was because uh, of all the, of the many things established in this episode is that we know right away the comic relief is Herc and Carver. Oh, right? yeah. These, the, they both, both of them sharing one brain cell. Very clear. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they're quite proud of it. You know, their entire, um, their entire, you know, M.O. is busting heads. Like, they live for a street rip so they can fuck somebody yeah. up. They are, right. you know, police brutality one and two. That's them. They're the, right? the Beavis and Butthead of the Wire. Yes, they, that is them. And 
a, a constant theme in the show was them getting into these pointless, but yet funny, but yet illuminating ass arguments. So they're at the, um, you know, they're back in, in, you know, police headquarters, back in the office or, or what have you. You know, Kima's struggling to try to figure out how to type because uh, she can't type. And yo, talk about some shit that didn't age well. It's funny as fuck seeing her use whiteout. Whiteout. <laughs> she used a whiteout. I was like, damn. Use a whiteout. I can't remember. I can't. I don't mm-hmm. remember the last time I, I I saw some whiteout. I just know if you sniff too much of that shit, you be high as hell. Think about it, man. And you know, man. Shout out to 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 all of the computer engineers. Shout out to Jobs <laughs> and Wozniak and every. Shout out to Dell. We were really living in the dark ages. Dude, you couldn't just go back and delete your shit. You had to use a chemical to make a correction. Do you, I lived in these times. You had to use a chemical. Sometimes you run out of the shit and then you'd have to get more. Like, like well, it's just like, you know, just I just have to take a time out. I'm so happy that this is things have gotten a lot easier. For oh, us. no, no. Kima. I mean, that's real shit. Because like, look, these kids today, you you uh, Gen Zers, I think that's what they they are. Y'all don't know shit about this typewriter struggle because I, I grew mm. up having to use a typewriter when you have like some essay due double space. You know, mm-hmm. and you got to basically type that bitch perfectly. So because mm-hmm. we I mean, my grandmother had a typewriter, but we ain't had no whiteout, though. No so, whiteout. No whiteout. And yo, let me tell you, when she upgraded and she got a typewriter that would erase shit, that was like one of the happiest days of my life. But then at the same time, you have to have correction tape. If you didn't have correction the correction tape. tape, if you ran out of the correction tape, you was fucked. And you like and, and and by the way, if you're like a person like me and you cared about school, you're writing stuff up, and you get to the bottom of a page and you it don't look right on the page. It feels like you got to go back and do the whole thing whole over thing again. Over again yep. You kids can speak into your phones and it'll fucking type it now. I don't want to hear no shit from y'all. It, all right, we're getting off the subject. No, no, but, I mean this is, this is like, <laughs> be the old man yelling at the cloud. I'm right with you. <laughs> Fuck this, man. It's like, they don't know how good they have it. And yes, this is our version of having to walk uphill in snow in negative 50 degree weather both ways. Y'all don't know about that mm-hmm. fucking typewriter whiteout correction tape struggle. Y'all just don't. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Herc and Carver sitting there um, getting into some insane, stupid ass fucking argument as they often do. And Herc starts talking about chain of command. He's just like, yo, chain of command. And then he was like, don't you know shit always rolls downhill? It's a chain of command, baby. The shit always rolls downhill. Motherfucker, we talking about piss. Piss does too. Think about it. Shit rolls. Piss trickles. Downhill, though. Man, you don't know that for sure. Have you ever actually seen Not piss to change the subject on you two charmers. These motherfuckers start arguing about the difference, what the trajectory of shit and piss. And that's yeah. why I was like, I'm a dialogue <laughs> person, right? Like, right. so I love that sneaky good dialogue that's about something in A, but really it's about something bigger. And this mm-hmm. entire, the theme, it really, the, the, the pilot episode should have been called Chain of Command because yeah. D'Angelo broke the chain of command in many ways, or the chain of discipline, for sure. Um, McNulty broke it, and that's why he wound up setting into motion a series of events that, you know, obviously led to, you know, the, the, that was the, the kickoff and the tension point for this entire series. And D'Angelo, his decision to murder somebody in plain view became the touchstone, became the tension point, the jumping off point, which eventually led to the fall of a whole fucking empire, starting with his ass. Because he was the one that put the Barksdale on the radar 
of the ever vigilant, smart ass, gotta be um, the most arrogant man in the room, McNulty, <laughs> which ultimately leads to the demise of the Barksdales. Yeah. And also remember that all of these breaches and discipline that we're talking about, this is the episode where the discipline is broken. That chain of command that you're talking about. Uh, McNulty breaks the discipline when he talks to the judge. Um, you know, uh, D'Angelo had broken the discipline when he was speaking to Weebay. He had broken it before when he had uh, killed the guy in the towers. And then there's another thing, a very, very, very important moment. Um, when the kids beat up Bubbles' boy, do you know why that's so important? So in case you guys don't remember, Bubbles had a boy that used to hang around with him, Johnny. They were, they were uh, cohort dope fiends in t- together. Um, uh, Johnny and Bubbles are going to, uh, they're going to, um, they got a scheme where they're going to burn these guys, right? They're going to take this really not real looking money at all. Uh, and they're going to mess it up with coffee. They're going to slip a 10 or a five in there so they can get what they could have got for 20 for five or what they could have got for 30 for 10. Uh, they catch, they catch him doing it. They catch Johnny doing it. Right. Um, because before D'Angelo had noticed that they had been burnt. I guess they had given the money to Wallace and Wallace hadn't seen it. Uh, cause Wallace is another guy who's not very good at being a dope dealer. Who's not right. very good he at being count. on the money. Cause he can't count. So, um, Johnny tries this. All right. Remember Johnny's still learning too, because Bubbles is trying to teach him discipline. They're, they're burning up the money. They're, they're, they're dirtying up the money. And Bubble goes, remember, these ain't no chumps that we burning. These guys are big deal. Trying to teach him the way that you do something. Johnny doesn't listen. He goes off without bubbles this particular time and tries to do it. He gets caught. They beat his ass. D'Angelo walks away from them while they're beating his ass. Them beating his ass does them beating his ass does something very important to the fall of the Barksdales. They activate bubbles. Bubbles is the greatest snitch in moving picture history. He is the Willie Mays. He is the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He is the Babe Ruth. He is the Pele. He is the greatest snitch ever. And when I say all those guys, I'm not talking about who you think is the greatest. I'm talking about he got numbers on the board. Bubbles is the best snitch. Sees the street crazy. Because they beat up Johnny, they fuck him up so bad, right? Something that D'Angelo didn't really want. Bubbles then gets activated against the Barksdale's and his contributions to identifying them, to putting Kima and McNulty in places where they need to be, really, really helped bring them down. So all of those things get stirred up in the first episode, and all those things have to do with people breaking discipline. So would you put um, Bubbles, or the Johnny uh, being beat up, and I refer to Bubbles and Johnny as like the crackhead Batman and Robin. Um, ah. <laughs> for sure. Is that mm-hmm. would you put that in the bucket of Johnny getting beat up as a you might want to file that away for for later kind of moment? Absolutely. So under R, you might want to file that away category. That is the moment of this episode. That moment right there. You beat him up. It's like any other probably any other day they beat up a a, a fiend 
or whatever, a drug addict, it's probably it's not no a big, big deal. deal to them. The humanity is gone at that point. They don't care. But this particular guy is connected to the Tony Stark of snitches. He is the Iron Man. He is the Steve Rogers of snitches. Okay? And so, so you've pissed him off and you don't even know it. And Bubbles was, was weaponized. He was used as a weapon throughout the rest of the series. Okay, so... Are you saying, you know, you have a point because I'm thinking of the other snitch that people like to refer to, and that would be Chris Rock. That would be Pookie, right? Yeah. But Pookie wound up, he wound up dead and back on it, right? Pookie wasn't a good snitch. He wasn't a good snitch, right? Because he wound up burnt the fuck up. Like, nah, right? Bub survives despite Mm -hmm. the fact that he snitches on multiple folks throughout consistently. The only way his life is ever in jeopardy is because of his own shit. It's nothing to do with his snitching. It's because of his own shit. Now, yeah. I would say two other equally big file this away for later moments happen in episode one. One happens at the very beginning of episode one when um, the attorney says to Stringer after, remember, McNulty went to visit that, went to see the attorney who's, you know, clearly representing the state and and uh, he tells him, yo, your case is getting fucked up upstairs, just so you know. And he's like, ah, there's no way, you know, because he's on the phone. He's busy doing other shit. He's just I think like, that guy's a shit cop. in the back. I think that yeah. guy's a cop. Yeah. I stand corrected. So he's a cop, right? And he says, right. remember, he says to Stringer, he said, think I give a fuck after the, ca- the case goes south and D'Angelo winds up going free. He says, think I give a fuck. I'll be chalking you up one night. Think I give a fuck? I'll be chalking you off one night. You have a nice day. It's stringing. Let's go. Foul that away for later. <laughs> foul that away for later. Definitely. The, yes, the other foul that, foul that away for later moment is when Jay bet McNulty his ass was going to wind up policing on a boat. He oh, said, I got 20 on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 20 is like, we knew that was going to happen. He knew that was gonna happen. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know where to rate that prediction, given that it wasn't. You know, this isn't exactly predicting the Cavs gonna come back on the Warriors being down three one. This ain't that, right? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because McNulty's a fuck up. So odds are he gonna do something that's gonna wind. That's gonna do exactly what happened, which is gonna put him in the crosshairs of the people that make decisions, and they gonna wind up fucking him over because he's McNulty and he can't help himself. But he was. It was a very specific pr- prediction to be like, your ass going to be on that boat. Boom. I got 20 on it. Right. Follow I mean, look, follow the way. Definitely. Because, you know, the, McNulty is destined to ride the boat. And that plot point is destined to be spun into a thousand other ones that have to do with a completely different uh, angle of the dr- the various drug enterprises in Baltimore. You know, also, it, it, that was another thing that was showing you the way the police department worked. You know, there were consequences for breaking these disciplines. We see them everywhere. There were consequences. And for breaking that particular discipline that McNulty broke for doing what he did, you know, they they ask you where you don't want to go uh, or they find out where you don't want to go. And then that's where you go. And that would also be something else that we should follow away from later when we're getting to know characters like Lester Freeman, who guys who are fantastic police, police. I love police. the fact that in The Wire... I love the fact that in The Wire in Baltimore, because where I'm from, the black people say police and the white people say police. Okay? And the, 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 where I'm from, black people, my people down in South Baton Rouge, we say, yo, they go to police. The white people say, I'm calling the police. Okay? In The Wire, 
everybody, white or black, says police. You know what I'm saying? He's a good police. It's like, it's the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so like later on when we meet Lester Freeman, he is working in that place where he didn't want to go. So, yeah. and that, that happened. So that's definitely a great one. Uh, uh, for sure. Uh, all right. Now taking this whole episode is in the entirety. Who do you think won this episode? Who won the episode? I From would a- have to say McNulty. McNulty was the winner. You know why? Mm. He he got his detail. McNulty want, always wanted the chance to, to, to prove to everyone he was the smartest son of a bitch bastard in the room. And by going to Judge Phelan and talking his shit, even though in that back and forth, McNulty, like I said, didn't seem like he was purposely trying to do it. But Judge Phelan, he lit a fire under the judge. He got a detail, which is going to put him closer to Daniels. McNulty at the end when he goes, I'm going to do this case. When he's talking to Buck after they're shit drunk, piss drunk, um, outside of a car, the train tracks in Baltimore. When he says, I'm going to do this case, that was him laying claim to having won the episode. I would say it was McNulty. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good choice. Because he, even though, and this, this seemed to be just how McNulty operates. He takes up the most fucked up route possible to achieve the desired result. Whatever's mm-hmm. the most fucked up way, he gonna take that way. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if he gets the desired result, what does it matter about the carnage and the dissension and the, the utter trail of just complete ridiculousness he has left to achieve desired result? Um, yeah. At, at least from a, and this is, I mean, it's certainly not a minor character in the, in the scope of the entire series, but for this particular episode, the person that stuck struck me, and I don't think before I really paid as much attention because I think I just put him in the bucket of being like, okay, decision maker, suit, or in this case, uniform or title. I think Rawls, I would put Rawls as a, a as an undercover winner of this episode because Rawls has some very powerful but hilarious scenes. When he holds up both his middle fingers to, <laughs> to McNulty, just like, I got two responses for you. This one yeah. and this one. Right. And then also something I didn't remember or I either forgot, blanked out, whatever. Just, I don't know. I didn't remember that Rawls just casually drops that project nigga line to McNulty and just keeps going like he ain't saying nothing. Can I tell you something? That is really one of the most impressive things about the show is there are several times in the wire where white people use the N-word and I managed not to hate those people over the long run and I'm not sure why. It's kind of like in The Godfather when there's this whole, that scene in The Godfather where they're all sitting around I know and somebody, yep. somebody actually says, go back and watch, look how big my eyes are getting. I want you guys to go back and watch The Godfather again for one of the most racist scenes in the movie history, I can't remember who it was. It, it, it was Pantano, who, which guy it was. One guy basically says, listen, uh, I sell drugs in uh, the Puerto Ricans and the blacks. They're animals anyway, so let them lose their souls. Now, look, guys, I'm a fun dude. There's a lot of shit that I can deal with. 
That's a hard motherfucker to deal with. But somehow when I think about The Godfather, I don't think about that particular line, even though when I think about that particular line and every time I think about that particular line, what happens to me happens right now, which is that my mind is in a fucking blender thinking, why am I not protesting this shit? And so what I think about... Why am I still considering The Godfather to be arguably the greatest movie of all time? (laughs) Why? Like, every time The Godfather comes on, I get all kinds of fucking excited. Why? What's not resonating? Anyway, but with Rawls, it dropped. And when it happened, even as I rewatched it, I was kind of like, oh, shit. He put a hard ER on that shit. (laughs) He just dropped it. I was like, oh, shit. I did not did not see that coming. That was really right. Tarantino-esque. I was like, oh, okay. I forgot that. Right. And when you're watching it for the first time, you're thinking that that was purposefully done to make Rawls into the villain of the show. But Rawls being the villain of the show never materializes. He is McNulty's adversary, but the whole theme of The Wire really is five seasons of people trying to get McNulty not to be a total fucking dick. So not liking McNulty doesn't make you a villain in The Wire. Rawls is just another fucking cop, really. And so, yeah, that right there, it's just amazing how it happened. And then it kind of just didn't happen. It didn't stick on Rawls at all. But it's also what is a, a gift that The Wire has is introducing race in a subtle way, even though that project line was not subtle itself, but in a subtle way, including it in a basic conversation to let you know this is how little some of these guys in this position actually give a fuck about the people they're supposedly serving. Like on top of all the other problems the police department is having in Baltimore between the cooking the stats, not enough manpower, um, a whole bunch of other shitty things being focused on trying to appear as if they're stopping crime and they ain't making a dent in that shit. Oh, by the way, they also might be racist. You know, what you described with um, with The Godfather, you know, another one that's real close to that is Rocky. Because Rocky's a great, you know, well, first four Rockies. Great. Creed's great, right? But what nobody ever talks about is about how Pauly was a fucking racist. Was, you know the most time. racist, you know how much racist shit goes down <laughs> in Rocky 3? When, uh, when, yeah, Paul- when, when they start training with Apollo... Oh, yeah. when Paulie's scared to be in the gym because there's a bunch of black men a in there. A bunch of black and, guys in there, yeah. And he is yeah. like, and I think he calls them animals at some point as well. He does. And everybody's yeah. just like glosses over that. Like, oh, that's great that Rocky and Apollo are friends. By the way, Rocky's like brother-in-law's a fucking racist, but all right. Right. <laughs> I'm Paul, rolling with I, that's not, I, I, listen, I'll be honest with you. I'm mad at Paulie for that, but the still thing, you know, Paulie fucked up the money. That's what really I get at Paulie. Paulie gave power of attorney to whoever he gave power of attorney to. And also, Rocky's fucking stupid for letting Paulie have any power. Why Paulie, Rocky? Every time I think of Rocky losing all his money, that fucks with me. He took a lot of shots to the head. But, uh, you know, it, 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 you're right, though. Like, it, when, when a story is crafted greatly, uh, crafted expertly, sometimes things that really, really, really gnaw at us in our everyday life um, they just kind of become part of the story. This is not to say that anyone has carte blanche to talk to me like that at all. Fair warning, don't do it. But what I am saying is it goes on to some reason not to stick to Rawls that yeah. that happens in that one in that Well, one especially scene. it's really, it becomes more fascinating that he said that when you find out later, later. more about Rawls for, on a personal yeah. level, right? You're like, right. oh, 
Oh, okay. Okay, Ross. All right, okay, Ross. I see how you do. All right, I got you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's a testament. That's how you know when you've written something really great or you have a really great movie, a really great series, that you can just throw in some really obvious racism and we just like, you know what? This movie's so great. I'm just kind of pretend it didn't happen. You know, it's like like every time somebody eats a Chick-fil-A, you know, goes to Chick-fil-A, it's like, I'm going to just pretend like this homophobia don't exist. There it is. I want to enjoy this chicken sandwich. Uh-huh. Right. Meanwhile, <laughs> I won't watch Rosewood again to save my life because like the race is so bad and I can't take it. But a little light mixture of Godfather and the Wire. I'm okay. I'm all right. Yeah, well, see, well, that that goes back to something that we discussed in those other stories. The racism is used to cast people as evil because it is evil. When right. Ro- in, in, in the, the case of Rosewood, the character, <laughs> the ra- racism is a character, and it's a very real character. It's a very evil thing that leads people to do evil deeds. In the Wire, it's kind of more just like it's out there, and none of these people really access it. Is Rawls a racist? Probably, maybe. He works with black guys all day. He 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 probably has it's it's hard to say just from that one scene, but we do know that he said one thing that's an automatic identifier of that everywhere else except for in this one universe where everyone's motivation and characters are all questionable. Yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he he looks normal by extension, basically. Yep, yep mm-hmm. he looks normal. All right, uh before we conclude, uh our breakdown of the pilot episode of The Wire. Got a little trivia for you, man. Got a Ooh. little trivia for you. Again, staple of the podcast will be us giving you fun facts. You can repeat at parties um, and look really, really smart ab- among a bunch of other Wire fans if you so choose. So can you name the two actors who they considered to play the role of Jimmy McNulty other than Dominic West? Ooh. Uh, so is this is like 2000, probably 2000, 2001, if we, well, maybe probably even 2000, if we're in pre-production, yep. let me see who was hot in 2000. Cause I really have no idea. Oh, you know what? Give me some hints. How about this? Let's play a little game. Give me some okay. hints. All right. Okay? I'll give you some hints. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is probably more known for being, for comedy and being extremely silly. Um, not a dramatic actor at all. I don't think anybody would would classify this person as a dramatic actor at all. The other one, I would say if James Gandolfini had an acting twin, it'd be this dude. Oh, yeah. So one of them is known for comedy. Is he a comedian? Not a comedian, but a comedic actor. At least I don't think he's been a comedian, but it's definitely a comedic actor. Has been in... Well, I would say this is in my top five of, of like favorite comedies ever for sure what's the movie Step Brothers John C. Riley. yes John C. Riley. whoa yes it's true yeah, John C. Riley was one of the people being considered to play McNulty and if not for John C. Riley's wife that's who would have been cast as McNulty doesn't work I'll tell you something but by the way, John C. Riley had had a bunch of dramatic roles. Like he was in Hoffa. That's a straight dramatic oh, he was role. Was in Hoffa, but yeah. he's more known as being a comedic oh, actor. It, it, yeah, especially for the second half of like the the the. Uh, especially since that kind of happened, he's one of those actors that that kind of happened to, to where they caught a comedy wave and that's where they went. But early on, he had even I would I would argue, uh, Boogie Nights is kind of like a 
a, a comedic performance. a comedic performance, I would say. Right. Magnolia, not as much, but Boogie Nights for sure. Um, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have worked for Jimmy Minolti. Jimmy Minolti, this is no disrespect to the lovely, lovely John C. Riley, but Jimmy McNulty had to be a guy that you he walked. There's one scene in the in the in the the series where Jimmy McNulty walks into a a, a restaurant. He's sitting down at a booth, and a waitress looks at him. He goes, "You know what's good here?" And she goes, "Everything." Next scene, they're having sex. Okay. Can no you see John, John C. Riley doing that? Not not the not gonna be. Not right. for the McNulty. I mean, because Mc, Mc, McNulty, and maybe we should keep a count of this, is how many how many sex partners did, did McNulty have in the wire? I might I might keep a count. That might be my other yeah, project. Yeah, he, he had a lot. <laughs> um, so, and you said the other guy was what now? I said, so the other guy, he reminds me a lot of James Gandolfini in terms of the roles that he is, he he's portrayed. And I think his demeanor, gruff guy, bigger guy, um, Definitely from a, a physical standpoint, kind of reminds me of James Gandolfini. But real quick, before I tell you the answer, this is how John C. Riley wound up not getting the part. So uh -huh. David Simon really believed John C. Riley could be McNulty. And John C. Riley, he reached out to him. He called him. At the time, David Simon was in a corn maze with one of his kids, and he was not really paying attention on the phone. He said, hey, man, can I call you, you back later? He tried to call him back. John C. Riley never picked up the phone. And it comes up when he tried to call him back. And it comes out later. The reason he didn't is because when he told his wife about it, uh, his wife was like, I ain't moving to Baltimore. Sorry. <laughs> and that's why. So him even, you know, because he had been able to explain like, hey, this is the role. This is where it's going to be. And he told his wife about it, his wife was like, hell no. Nah. And so he never returned David Simon's call. The other happy person. Wife. The <laughs> other person. Say? I said, happy wife, happy life. Good on yeah. John C. Riley. Um, the other person, gruff, bigger guy. Uh, give me, I need one more hint. I need one more um, hint. Other he was in The Departed. He was in The Departed. Gruff, gruff bigger guy. He's like James Gandolfini. Uh, not Alec Baldwin. No, 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 no. Not Alec Baldwin. Oh. So Alec Baldwin's uh, big now. Give, give yeah. it to me. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. The other person who who was pegged to play McNulty, if not for a catastrophic terrorist event, um, would have been McNulty, is Ray Winston, who plays Mr. French in The Departed. You've seen this guy. Oh, yes. yeah, I've seen Ray Winston. Yeah, of course I yes. know who he is. Yeah. Bigger guy. It kind of reminds me of James Gandolfini for some reason. Like, just that demeanor, that persona. So he was who also, that was the first choice, actually, for McNulty. And John C. Riley was second. And um, I think the casting director for this kind of introduced uh, Dominic into the situation. But the reason why Ray Winston didn't do it is because 9-11 happened and um, he couldn't kind of get home for like a couple of weeks because all the planes were grounded. And uh, he just because he's also from across the pond, as they say, and he just went straight back home was like, I'm good. And they never heard from him again. So after 9-11, he was kind of scared off. He didn't want to be in the States. And that was that. So there you have it. I think Ray Winston went on, if I'm right, I'm going to check this right now. I think Ray Winston, uh, I think it's Winstone. Is it Winstone? Is Ray Winstone? Is Win I, think you're, I think you're right. I think it's Winstone. My I think he went on, if I'm correct, to play uh, the juggernaut in X-Men The Last Stand. I, I, no, mm. Maybe that wasn't. 
No, maybe no, no, no. That wasn't. No, him. that wasn't. That him. wasn't him. Okay. That wasn't him. That wasn't him. This guy's different. I'm confusing. I, I did this. I did. Bill did this on the podcast, Van, and I came all, out. All triumphant. white people don't look alike. I'm sorry. Know. I'm sorry. No, I know Ray. No Ray was saying he's a, like in a, a big time actor. For him, I, you know, once again, I don't think. Oh wow! I just learned that he was in. He was in the Point Break remake. Yep, he was in Point Break. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, whoa, that's, that was a tough one right there. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, shout out uh, Gary Busey. But yeah, I think you know, obviously, it's easier to do this when you have when you're looking back at a show. But the reality is that uh, it was the role that Dominic West was born to play. It was Jimmy I McNulty mean, for sure. Yeah, it couldn't have been anybody else. I mean, he had the perfect level of arrogance and devil may careness, as the lady could call it, um, and he had to be kind of the ultimate self-destructive anti-hero. And this was a role, yeah. as you said, that he was meant to play. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for us, boys and girls. Um, we're going to be back soon to discuss episode two of season one of The Wire. Uh, you know, what's also kind of amazing is, Again, in my feeble mind, I re I thought for some reason season one was slow. Season one actually moved, moved a lot better. So um, the next episode of Way Down in the Hole, we will cover all things in episode two. So thanks again for joining us. Van and I are out. Take care. He is the Willie Mays. He is the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He is the Babe Ruth. He is the Pele. He is the greatest snitch ever.